Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Inside ND Sports Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football, recruiting, and more for InsideNDSports.com on the Rivals Network. Notre Dame's offensive coaching staff appears to be finally settled. The final piece came into place Monday with Virginia Tech offensive line coach Joe Rudolph expected to replace the retired Harry Heastand. Rudolph may be best known for his work at Wisconsin, where he was a tight ends coach from 2008 to 11, and the associate head coach, offensive line coach, and either offensive coordinator or run game coordinator from 2015 to 2021. We are fortunate enough here at Rivals to know someone who's crossed paths with Rudolph throughout his career, and that's Rivals national analyst Clint Cosgrove. We've had Clint on the podcast before, but if you don't know his resume, it includes time on the football staffs at Nebraska, Minnesota, and Dartmouth, and many years scouting players. Clint, thanks for joining us. Oh, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me on, guys. Clint, let's just start with what was your reaction when you heard the news that Joe Rudolph would be Notre Dame's next offensive line coach? Well, I was fired up for uh, Rudolph and their family. Uh, I felt bad for Coach Pry. Um, I was actually Coach uh, Pry's. His dad was my roommate at one point for a couple weeks at Dartmouth when we crossed <laughs> paths there. Um, so uh, I, I felt bad for them because they're losing a, a great coach, a great person, great human being, and uh, a great recruiter. So, um, you know, uh, I think it's a huge tire for Notre Dame, a uh, huge tire for Coach Freeman. I believe that he cro- uh, crossed paths with, uh, with Rudolph at um, Ohio State uh, briefly before uh, Rudolph was hired at at uh, Nebraska for his first kind of full-time job. And that's where I was on staff with Rudolph for a year, but also I grew up around him. He played on the same team that my dad coached for at Wisconsin, played in the NFL for a while. And, uh, you know, we just have a lot of connections and are great family friends on top of it. So, um, you know, I'm happy for Notre Dame and I'm happy for the Rudolph family. Well, I'm happy he has a um, bachelor's in science and zoology because it'll help him deal with the Notre Dame fan base. But uh, but when you think about, you know, putting aside maybe personal feelings, when you think about elite offensive line coaches in college that you've come into contact, where would Joe Rudolph stand in that group? Uh, he would definitely be up there. Um, you know, I've come across some, some pretty good ones. Uh, you know, and, and the crazy thing is a, a lot of them are through my connections to Wisconsin and Wisconsin is known for great offensive line play, obviously. So I've been blessed to grow up uh, around kind of great offensive line coaches. Uh, you know, Bill Callahan is, is, is probably the best that I've ever been around, ever seen. Um, you know, Keith Clark, who was out of Dartmouth was a great, great one that I've been around. Um, you know, uh, the, there's a, there's a lot of good ones. I mean, Bob Bostad, I mean, uh, you know, I wasn't, I didn't cross paths with him at Wisconsin, but uh, I would say Rudolph is, is up there with the best of them. And uh, the thing that I love about him is he is the, the complete package when it comes to, and we kind of talked about this yesterday, um, you know, in order to coach guys hard, in order to get after him, and you got to get after your offensive line because they got to be tough. They got to want to get, you know, they, they've got to impose their will on a defense. So, you got to be able to coach them hard. And the first part about doing that and, and kids accepting hard coaching is they have to trust you. They have to believe that you have their best interests. So first and foremost, he develops great relationships with players. Uh, he does care about them. I know that for a fact, and I know the players know that. And so as a result, they're going to play hard for him. So that's the first thing. He's able to coach them hard. Then he's a technician. He understands the game. He played the position. You know, he's a PA guy that, that went to Wisconsin, 
was a starter there, was part of, you know, that big turnaround back in the 90s when they went to that first Rose Bowl after being a horrible program for such a long time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, then he played in the NFL. And so uh, he played for, I believe, Bill Callahan, played in the NFL, obviously, for some some great coaches around some great players, uh, was at Ohio State, which always has great coaches, and then, uh, you know, came back to, you know, really get it started at Nebraska, and it's gone from there, ended up at Wisconsin. And we'll note, and, and uh, Clint brought this up when we were doing the print store yesterday, uh, Bill Callahan was <laughs> Joe Rudolph's line coach all five of his years that he was at Wisconsin. So he had that direct tutoring the whole time. So that's pretty interesting. Tyler, go ahead. Yeah, I'm curious. It, when you dis- describe Joe Rudolph, he sounds maybe cut from the same cloth as Harry Heastand. Um, now, obviously, we know Harry Heastand better than you do, having been around him for, for his two stints at Notre Dame. How important do you think that is that Notre Dame has found someone that seems to have a lot of the same qualities as its former offensive line coach, who was obviously very respected in his own right? Yeah, I, I know the players respect Harry a lot. I know he connects with recruits, so they definitely have crossover in that way. It also, you know, uh, Joe may be – uh, well, I guess he's not that young anymore, but a younger guy. Uh, a young he's younger guy, than Harry. Younger. Yeah, he's younger and than me. Harry. Uh, uh, and just a little older than me, I guess. But, um, you know, th- th- that old school mentality. Um, you know, like you, guys, like you said, you guys have been around Harry much longer than me. Most of what I know about him is just from watching, you know, Notre Dame's offensive line play, hearing what the players say about him, hearing what recruits say about him. Uh, but, you know, it's not always necessarily, you don't always want to have, you know, a, a clone of your past coach coming in. But in this case, it's not a bad thing because it's not like Harry was pushed out because the offensive line play was horrible. You know, it's like right. he's a respected coach who's done some great things. And so um, when you're when you're changing offensive coordinators and there's all this change going on around you, even though it's an in-house hire, I, I think it is nice to have some sort of uniform philosophy uh, where you're not changing everything full scale. So there's going to be changes. Anytime you have new coaches, there's going to be changes. But when you have a coach that is that similar style come in, the players know what to expect. They're not going to have that shock factor and have to, you know, uh, relearn the position. I think that does, uh, that is important. And, um, you know, obviously two guys that I have a lot of respect for. And uh, I think that it makes the transition easier when, when there's other transitions going on around you to have some sort of stability as far as style of coaching at the position. When it comes to recruiting, you know, I was looking over the rivals lists of the players that he recruited during his time at Wisconsin, and it was pretty impressive. Now, a lot of those guys were from Wisconsin, which makes you think, what's in the water in Wisconsin that <laughs> produces all these guys? But do you feel, you know, Notre Dame is a national recruiting program. Marcus is pretty aggressive when it comes to getting out there, really shooting for the stars with recruits. Do you feel like Joe would fit in that mold that he could be a national recruiter, be a national presence? I do. Um, he's not going to be that rah, rah, you know, used car salesman type that can, <laughs> that can actually work in college football recruiting. Uh, maybe not as much with the Notre Dame type of recruit, but um, he is going to be an, a relationships based recruiter. 
He's not afraid to walk into anybody's living room. He's just really salt of the earth guy. So he's going to be able to walk into any house. He's going to be able to connect with the parents, connect with the kids. And um, he's, he's going to be, you know, he's going to be upfront and, and, and straightforward with people. And that's going to be his approach. Um, so there might not be a lot of glitz with it, but, um, you know, he, he can definitely recruit at a national level. I have no question about it. And, you know, just little keep, you know, buzzwords that he can use that don't even really matter all the time. But I played in the NFL. You know, I played at this level. I've done this. I've coached here. You know, uh, those Coach are the things the that kids want to hear. Yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, he has the resume and then he's just natural at being able to connect with people. Um, He's just a good person. And I think that will resonate well with the Notre Dame recruits and uh, he can walk in anybody's living room. So I have no question about it. You didn't see him do it at Wisconsin a lot. One, because they had a lot of in-state offensive line talent, which has actually since his departure, not all stayed there (laughs) anymore. Um, and I think that says a lot about, yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, and then, uh, uh, you know, they've lost kids to Ohio state and like that just never happened. And so I think uh, that's a testament to his ability to, you know, it it wasn't a foregone conclusion that all these guys were going to Wisconsin, you know, and, and he worked for it. And it seemed like there was, uh, you know, that, that fence around the state when it came to offensive linemen, but a lot of that was because of Joe's efforts you know, in the recruiting. And I honestly think just the way Wisconsin recruiting was going at the time, he was handcuffed a lot of the time. Uh, if given the opportunity, I'm sure he would have done more. But um, yeah, I, I think he'll be a hell of a recruiter for Notre Dame. Clint, given the amount of time you've spent around coaching staff, I'm curious what your thoughts are on how important like player leadership is in terms of being able to handle coaching transitions from like with Notre Dame's offensive coaching staff. Now we're going to have a new offensive coordinator, a new quarterbacks coach and a new offensive line coach. So how, how important are the players and the leadership within those rooms to making this transition be successful as well? I mean, it's huge. It's huge. Um, You know, I always say there's, there's a lot of great coaches that, um, don't have very good jobs or unemployed. And there's a lot of bad coaches with great jobs and seem like <laughs> great coaches and are employed. And because of a lot of that, when you're dealing with 18, 19 year olds, a lot of that stuff is out of your hands and player leadership plays a huge role because if the leader of that room and there's some butt kicker who I guarantee you leads the way in that room and the young guys follow the guys who are his age follow Hopefully it's your best player, because if your best player is your best leader, you're in good shape because they're going to make that transition easier. But at the same time, if that person who everybody looks up to and everybody follows says, this guy's horrible, uh, we're, we're going to do things the way we've done them. We're, we're going to do things the way we want to do them and we're not going to listen to them. You can shut it down right there. I don't care how good of a coach you are. Now, part of being a good coach is to combat that and give them a reason to want to play for you. Um, the great coaches will find a way to win over their players, but, uh, the transition can be, can be flawless and a lot easier if that player leadership steps in and says, this is the guy that we're, that's going to help us win. we believe in him and we're going to do this together as a group. And, um, I think that's huge. So, uh, the players are, are, are just as much, uh, you know, in charge of this as, as the new coach. Um, but you know, if you are a great coach, you need to be able to step in and you need to get these guys to look up to you and see you as a leader of men and a guy who's going to help them get to where they want to be. 
I think part of playing in the NFL with his resume is uh, in the NFL, a lot of coaches, um, the players, you know, they're making more money than you. A lot of their thing is, what are you doing to keep me in the league for as long as possible? Um, not saying that college kids are the same way, but they're also, you know, what are you doing to make me the best I can be? And, uh, you know, if your leaders are saying this guy is the guy to make us the best we can be, uh, the young guys follow and you can really establish a core room, core values and, and, uh, and a will to win. Clint, um, Joe has extensive offensive coordinator experience. <laughs> Notre Dame's new offensive coordinator doesn't really. He's got a couple of years under his belt. How do you think that dynamic will work? Do you feel like he can still be really valuable with his knowledge and yet let Jared kind of be the boss there. Do you think that dynamic will work well? Yeah, I do. Um, the good thing about uh, Rudolph and, um, and I'm saying this is a, this is from an outsider's eye. Let's say that I had never met him. You know, I, I, I'm, I constantly evaluating all the coaches that I'm around, not evaluating them like, Oh, I'm judging them. I'm always like trying to take things away from them, learn from them um you know see strengths weaknesses and uh the the one thing with joe is there's no ego there um he will step in and if he does feel he can maybe help in an area he will but he's not going to be one of those guys who comes in and is like i know more than you i'm taking this room over he knows it he'll know his role and he's going to do whatever he can do to help the team win uh that's just that's just the, the type of ego that he has. He has no ego. Um, and, and really at Wisconsin, I mean, he was offensive coordinator in title. Um, yes, I'm sure he ran the meetings and did the game planning and all that. But when it came to game day, I mean, Paul Chris was calling most everything. And I'm sure if Joe messed up one play that Paul was taking it back over anyways. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, uh, he does have experience, and yes, he could easily be an offensive coordinator. I, I will say this about Parker is Parker's a bright dude now. Um, I've been around him. I've worked uh, I worked with him when he was at Purdue. Uh, he, you know, he's a heck of a recruiter as well, and, uh, you know, he has experience. You know, he, he has been an offensive coordinator at West Virginia, I believe, and, um, you know, he's been an interim head coach, and I think, you know, you learn from each one of those steps along the way, so – uh, a great coordinator takes a lot of input from coaches that he respects. Uh, and I know there's a great group in that room now. I mean, you lose Tommy Reese. Yeah. That's not, you know, that's not a dream scenario necessarily. Um, but there's some good coaches in that room. And, uh, you know, I think Joe just adds to that with his knowledge base. Um, and, uh, you know, he's a team first guy. So uh, I think that we'll work well together. Just, I know them individually. I don't know them as a group. Uh, maybe, maybe they get in a fist fight the first week for all I know, <laughs> but like, uh, I, I just, I don't see that happening. Both great guys. And, and like I said, uh, not, not ego guys. And I, I think they will mesh well. And, um, yeah, I, I see it working pretty well. Just a follow-up. Are you familiar with Gino Gadulli at all? I am, uh, just from uh really the recruiting world uh we've crossed paths at camps uh i've i followed him as a recruiter because i respect him a ton as a recruiter and uh yeah we've you know i've probably had what's one your two. impressions of him as a recruiter oh he's a phenomenal recruiter really uh yeah gino can recruit his butt off um i remember like uh just where was he at maybe it was one of the michigan schools at central michigan i think mm -hmm. and yes. he would he 
Yeah, he would come into Illinois and, um, you know, they were actually not a client of mine. And I remember, uh, you know, just watching him work without having all the access to the information that some of the other guys around him had. And uh, I was really impressed with him. Um, he's extremely organized. He's a go-getter. And, um, you know, he connects well with the kids. The kids really like him. So, um, he's kind of the complete package there. Uh, you know, he's a big imposing figure. He walks in, uh, you know, I say, when was the last time I saw him? I think he was at, um, his coach at Cincinnati and it was at a morning practice at Tenwood, I think last year, uh, in the spring or early summer. And, you know, most of the coaches are hanging out and talking. It was like a coach's convention. You see Gino behind in the back with his notebook, taking notes and like, so, you know, he's that type, like he's, he's going to come back with his, his research done and he, he can evaluate. I know he can evaluate. He's a great evaluator and I know he connects with the kids as well. So um, yeah, it sounds like I'm pumping a lot of sunshine here and but <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I just, I barely know Gino. It's just from crossing paths with him on the recruiting trail. And, uh, but I do, I do think very highly of him. Clint, we are approaching the end of the dead period. So there hasn't been a ton of recruiting news, but one of the big stories we were following before the dead period was Justin Scott and his recruitment and uh, whether or not he would end up at Notre Dame, make a decision. He's sort of put that on hold just from a macro view. How, how big of a difference maker would Justin Scott be for Notre Dame? If, if the Irish were able to end up getting him in their class. I think it's huge because I mean, how many five-star Midwest kids are there? I mean, there's not a ton of them and right. he's a true five-star in every sense of the word from, from character, from size, athleticism, uh, you know, ability to play either side of the ball, really. Like he's just as elite on the offensive line as he is on the defensive line. So position versatility, I mean, you could line him up at fullback if you wanted to. So um, he, he's a, he's a big time player and it would be a big time get. And I think it's important, you know, uh, it, a lot of people thought it was a foregone conclusion that, that he would end up at Notre Dame, especially being at St. Ignatius. They already sent a ton of kids to Notre Dame. You know, mom wants him to be at a high academic school, somewhat close to home. So Notre Dame has, has all that stuff going in their favor. But I will say this. The very first time I talked to Justin Scott was the day that he got his Illinois offer. I went straight over practice because I was like, this kid's a freak. And where did he come from? And I started talking with coach. And, and this is part of the thing that I like about him. He has so much upside. People don't realize he was like playing basketball and soccer up until his sophomore year. He was not a football player. So um, for as good as he is, he's relatively raw. But that very first time, I was like, let's 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 dream and think big. Because I told his coach that day, I was like, you're, you're looking at a kid where teams from all over the country are going to be coming in here. He was like, you really think so? I was like, I can guarantee you that. And so I said to Justin, I was like, let's, you know, think big. If you could go anywhere, you know, what would be a school that you'd be really interested in? And he had just gotten his first offer, I think, from Illinois at the time. He's like, uh, well, it probably had never happened, but Georgia, you know, he's like, I was like, why Georgia? And this was before they won the national championship the first time, I believe. And he's like, well, I've got family down there. I've always liked it down there. So if you look at how long he's been looking at that program, even before he thought it was a realistic possibility, and you know how it is, you grow up dreaming maybe about something, but then when it comes time to make the decision, yeah, maybe Notre Dame's the best place for him in the end. And I think that would have been the decision had Georgia not offered. Um, but there's, a, they've at least given him something to think about. It'll be interesting to see how that visit goes. If it feels like home, 
And uh, I think we'll know pretty quickly if he's going to go to to probably Notre Dame or Georgia. I'm guessing the call will be um, after he takes that visit. I think he'll he'll know which is his truly home. Clint, I got one recruiting question, and this is my last recruiting question or last question. As you get into this 2024 cycle deeper, do our kids up front with you about where NIL stands on their priority list? And are we seeing about the same amount of kids that are acquisition feed type first kind of kids in this cycle? Um, I would say, cause I rarely ask about NIL. Um, okay. it's, it's weird. Um, if, they, if they're open and want to talk about it, uh, I will. I just don't really want to know the specifics. I try to not get too involved in that. Um, but kids I've noticed in this cycle, because, you know, when it first started, it almost felt like it was a little dirty, you know, because it had been illegal for so long. It's like they did it down in the SEC with like McDonald's uh, <laughs> breakfast bags, you know, with, with some cash from a booster on, on, the, on the way home from practice. Um, with their McRib. <laughs> yeah, with their McRib, the very special McRib. Um, that, that the McRib's back. Oh, it is. Oh, I love a good McRib, actually. But um, yeah, it just, so I think it felt dirty, even for the kids at first, but now it's becoming a lot more normalized. Everybody's talking about it. And, and I think part of the problem is when it first started, like a lot of this pay for play stuff that wasn't supposed to happen and it wasn't intended to be that way. Um, that's what got all the publicity. You didn't hear about the guys at Ohio State where the part of their NIL was they were giving them money and teaching them how to flip homes, you know, like mm -hmm. giving them a life skill and stuff like that. And um, I think that's what name, image, and likeness was intended to be. It was to actually profit off of your name, image, and likeness. If you go to a school and people want to wear your jersey, awesome. If you go to a school and people want to have you in their commercial, awesome. I think there's no pay place for pay for play. Nobody really talks about pay for play unless it's kind of in passing. Um, but I have heard NIL without the specific question being asked to a kid come up more in this recruiting cycle. The last one I wanted to ask you was about Carson Hobbs, one of Notre Dame's cornerback commits from the Midwest from Cincinnati. He was recently bumped up by rivals to a 5.7 rating, which means he's in the highest category for three-star recruits. Uh, what what did you see from him that warranted that bump? And then what do you think he can do in the maybe next coming months to, to earn a four-star status? Yeah, um, if you're listening to this, Carson, you're a heck of a player. Uh, I, I do believe you can uh, eventually get that four-star. You are a potential four-star elite player. You, you've got a chance to be great, man. Um, okay, so... Now that that's been said, uh, he got the bump because he is extremely long and he can run and he is very raw. That is why he did not get the four star right now. The, at the end of the day, need to see him more in person. So hopefully he shows up at our camp or hopefully I can make it somewhere and, and really get a deep dive, do a great eval on him. Um, and this is a group conversation. So these things are constantly in flux. You know, right. we'll sit we'll sit down for an eight hour meeting. Everybody's got their guys. They're on the spreadsheet. We go through them one by one. But in order for him to get that four star, I think he just needs to continue to develop his body control. It's hard for a young kid that's long and athletic like him to really get the nuances of the position because they're growing into their body. The problem is it's a lot of projecting, and that's what stars are. We're projecting the future, trying to project future first round, second round draft picks. 
And um, when you have the type of length he does and you have the straight line speed that he does, sometimes it takes a little bit for the body to catch up in terms of mechanics where you're very extremely fluid coming out of breaks fast, uh, closing on the ball faster. So, um, you know, uh, it, it's just his level of rawness, but the, the pure raw ability is what gave him the bump. The next uh, transition for him will be kind of bringing it all together. And this class will get ranked like five more times. So I have no question that he has that in him. And, uh, you know, it's just part of the process. I'd rather uh, or we would rather get a guy, a guy, raise them as they go Mm -hmm. and put them too high early and bump them down because that's not a good feeling for anybody involved. And, uh, you know, I'd like to think of it as a little carrot that they can chase as well. If the kid's not ready to have a four-star, you don't want to give him a four-star. I think it's detrimental to them in the end. Yes, he has four-star upside. I just, as a group, I don't think they thought that it was there yet. We need to see more in person, and hopefully we do. All right, Clint. Well, we really appreciate that transparency. I know the ratings conversations can be a, a little bit hard, but uh, we, we you appreciate should see it. my DMs. <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate that. Um, and uh, the whole rivals analyst crew is always very good in terms of being transparent with us and telling us where where their heads are at and what they're thinking and what goes into that thought process. So uh, we appreciate your insight on Joe Rudolph as well. Um, you're always a great interviewer uh, e on our podcast and uh, we will certainly be in touch moving forward. Yeah, no, thanks a ton for having me on guys. I know I talked way too much as normal, but uh, I appreciate you. All right. Now it's time for questions. You can submit questions to us on Twitter or the Insider Lounge message board before every podcast. I'm at TJamesND and Eric's at EHansonND. First one I have for us, Eric, is from at DrewBrennan77. What questions will you be asking Sam Hartman when the media gets access to him here soon? Well, you know, I I don't typically um, make a list of questions. What I do is... I'll write some topics down. Now it'll be a free for all interview. It's not going to be a one-on-one, but when you kind of get into that free for all, you want to make sure that you, the conversation doesn't move away so much that you forget some of the things that you really want to talk about. So I'll jot a few keywords down, but the key to a really good interview, even with a bunch of people kind of jumping in and maybe especially with that is flow in the interview. You don't want to disrupt the natural flow. It's a, conversation keep the person comfortable the only time i'll actually come up with a list i used to do these 20 questions things with brian kelly like you know have you ever used the um term dream kitchen you know uh, who's the uh, group that's on your um in your music collection that you're embarrassed to talk about things like that um if i were to just come up with some things off the top of my head right now topics that I think would be interesting, certainly the coaching changes and how they've affected him. You know, Tommy Reese leaving, Gino Goduli coming in, a new offensive coordinator. I'd, I'd be curious about his impressions of Notre Dame's wide receivers, what his chemistry has been like with them so far. And then I think a third thing would be, you know, earning respect in the locker room and his relationships with the other quarterbacks. Yeah. Most of those things are would be on that. I mean, I would probably I I think ask him flatly like how disappointed were you that Tommy Reese left and how big of a reason was he for you to come to Notre Dame? Um, I'm also interested like his thought process or his perspective on what it will be like playing in a different offense that's not uh, based around the mesh scheme. 
and how that impacts him and what his confidence is and being without that, maybe how he, how that helped his game. If, if, if he felt it did, I don't, I don't know. Um, and the receiver thing I think is big too. Like, what does he think of the guys that he's, he's working with who's stood out to him now? I mean, you're not going to, he's not going to come in here and say, you know what? These guys aren't any good. The, the guys that had a wait for us are better. Like he's, he's too a uh, veteran and savvy of a quarterback to do something like that. But I think there you do get to some kernels of truth there when just in based in way, like they, they talk about specific guys. Um, and uh, so all those things I would be interested to hear from him. Um, hopefully, <laughs> I may, I may not have the opportunity to be there for the for the question session when uh uh it may happen given that I'll be down at the NFL combine this week but we will see how that all plays out. All right, next question is from Nathan Reynolds at Enforcers 2117. Do you see any more coaching changes happening? For example, defensive coordinator, running backs coach and or special teams coordinator. Well, you're never safe until the NFL carousel stops. And, you know, the whole Tommy Reese thing in Alabama was an outgrowth of something that happened in the NFL. Bill O'Brien goes to the Patriots. Then suddenly Alabama has an opening. Then Tommy Reese leaves. Then they, they promote a guy within, but that creates an opening for a quarterback's coach. And Harry retires. There's all kinds of things that can happen. And you, you, I mean, even yesterday you were seeing some college coaches going to the NFL. Um, you know, the speculation has been if if there's somebody that's going to leave between now and when that carousel stops, it would be Al Golden at defensive coordinator and Dylan McCullough at running back coach. I would imagine both of them have had offers, especially Dylan. But uh, I would say it's more likely than not that those guys are going to end up staying at Notre Dame another year. Yeah, I don't I don't have reason to believe at this time that they're leaving, but. That, that that can that it can change in an instant just one from one phone call you know you never really know um but yeah i think uh they like where they're at and uh but certainly you can't rule out that a different offer that is more attractive could come their way next question is from brendan Corey clonch at brendan Corey. what will be the biggest difference going from he stand to rudolph well i i think the cultural part of it, not that Wisconsin didn't have great culture. They did, but it's their own culture. You know, Harry would bring in Zach Martin, Quentin Nelson, McGlinchey. I'm not sure that would happen with somebody that, you know, came from Wisconsin. If he would, if in Virginia tech, if he would uh, bring in uh former, former players, either from Wisconsin or Notre Dame to help out, um, I'm sure his personality is a little bit different. They're both really demanding. They're both technique driven coaches. I would imagine that we'll have to, you know, uh, bleep some of their stuff on the, um, <laughs> practice videos. Um, but, um, you know, that I don't think you're going to get a huge difference. Like for example, Jeff Quinn and Harry, where Harry was so technique driven and, Jeff was more about morale and chemistry and guys getting along. And he was kind of more of a rah-rah coach. I think um, Joe is more old school. So I think we'll be talking about more of the similarities than we will the differences. Yeah. I, I, 
this and, and some of the other questions we get, it's like, I don't know how, you, why, how am I supposed to know so much about Joe Rudolph so quickly? I don't know. Right. I don't know the guy. I've never talked to him, never met him. Uh, that's why we have Clint on our podcast to talk about him because he knows him better than we do. Um, so anything that we're, we're, I mean, we're just extrapolating based off information that's secondhand. And um, right. so I, I don't, I don't know. The, the thing that jumped out to me is like you mentioned, he's, he's not connected to Andy's past. So he'll need to work on keeping those connections with he stands guys in the NFL, I think it would be wise to do that. Um, even though it's obviously not going to be the same, but I think, I think those guys, they obviously respect Harry. He a lot, but they, they have appreciation for that legacy sort of continuing at Notre Dame. So, um, and I don't see it as like some situation where like Joe Rudolph forced Harry, he stand out or something like that. This isn't like Joe Rudolph's doing that. that right. Harry he stands no longer in the job. So, um, I would you would like to think that that would uh, make that transition easy, and um, but I do think it would be important for Joe Rudolph to to sort of reach out to those guys and keep that continuity. All right, next question is from at Henry Bede. Will the blocking scheme change with new offensive coordinator and offensive line coaches? Also, do you have any thoughts on the potential grad transfer offensive guard and what that means for whether current Notre Dame players remain on the roster? Um, this is kind of. Tyler's answer to the last one, it would be impossible for us to know that without talking to them first. But those are the kinds of conversations Jared Parker and Joe Rudolph and the rest of the offensive staff will have is about, okay, what do we want to keep? What do we want to change? Because you got change at three key positions on, on the offense. So yeah, I'm sure Joe has some ideas and, and Jared has some ideas and they'll kind of talk through that and, and, um, by spring practice, we'll have a pretty good idea of what they're doing. Um, as far as let, let's talk specifically about somebody, and then we'll talk generically about adding a grand trans grad transfer. Mason Lunsford uh, is a grad transfer from Maryland who has, I think, eight offers. He very recently jumped into the transfer portal. Grad transfers don't have the same rules. They don't have to wait till that late May period to do it he he was maybe 10 days removed from getting into the transfer portal he announced he was visiting Notre Dame and now Notre Dame's kind of rolled that back and and that visit isn't going to happen at least not now um so um here's what I'll say generically about a grad transfer at offensive guard I think Notre Dame is best to just kind of get through spring practice and see what they have especially with a new offensive line coach evaluating things. My thought is unless you're expecting unusual amount of attrition or if you had a lot of injuries in the spring or people just are not performing the way you thought they would be, um, if you're not willing to tap into the heavy depth of tackle to, to satisfy some of the guard spots, uh, then maybe you take a look at that batch that's coming in the portal in May first through 15th and go pick somebody there but again you, you throw a pebble in the water it's going to cause ripples and uh, I think there are younger players that might get a little impatient if you bring somebody in especially if it's a multiple year offensive guard if it's a guy coming in just for one year I think there's more patience for that if, if he's got two years like Lunsford has then what do you tell a guy like Rocco if he's Spindler if he's not starting? I think that's a difficult conversation. Yeah, 
I've been saying for months that Notre Dame was looking at bringing someone in on the interior offensive line. Um, and uh, I think we saw evidence of that being true once again here, but I don't know that everyone was on the same page. And because he had just recently jumped in the transfer portal, I think there was some communication there. Um, and then, but obviously Notre Dame was sort of working under different circumstances previously than they are now. And um, so I agree with you, like it's best for, Joe Rudolph to get in here and figure out what he has. Now, certainly there are people at Notre Dame that already have opinions about these offensive linemen, but I think Rudolph's opinion should um, have a lot of weight there. So, and I, I mean, and that that sort of relates back to the first question: Will like the will the blocking scheme change and those things? Like, to me, my personal opinion is it's like. If Joe Rudolph comes in here or Jared Parker takes over and says, this is what we're going to do. This is what I want to do without like basing it off the players that they have at their disposal. That's not good coaching. Like you, you're, you need to magnify the strengths of the players that you're working with. Um, and, and it, it's unreasonable to believe Joe Rudolph has that depth of knowledge about Notre Dame's offensive line at, at this point in time. Um I'm sure he's familiar with it. He's probably sure he's done some, some studying of it to get an understanding of what Notre Dame has done and what they have. And that's part of him evaluating the, his interest in wanting to come to Notre Dame, but there's a lot more that goes into like, okay, this is what we're going to do scheme wise. This is what, these are going to be our top three run plays. Like I'm sure he's going to pull off of, he and Parker will pull off of things that they're most comfortable with. um, But they also need to be uh, adaptable to, the strengths of the players they're working with. Like, and that, I mean, the fact that you have Joe Halt and Blake Fisher as your tackles, like that should inform, okay, how do we best highlight their skill sets and take most advantage of what they can do for us at those important positions? Um, So I think I'm sure we'll see a lot of similar plays. I mean, there's only so many, there's not a million different run plays. Like it's, it's 10 different basic schemes at most. Um, and then you sort of pick one, pick the ones you, that you can run the best and figure out how to do that. And um, there's obviously wrinkles within those, but um, that's sort of how you, you figure out what, what will work best for you. All right. Next question is from LDL go Irish on the insider lounge. Zeke Carell graded out on pro football focus as the lowest of all starting offensive linemen from last year's team. I have seen him overpowered and I've seen, seen him lose his base when a defender makes a move on him, I applaud his commitment and drive to make himself as good as he has become another center who made himself better, a better player with time with Sam Mustafer. Sam continued to improve in the pros. Can Zeke become Sam or because of Zeke's shortcomings last year, can you see a new O-line coach replace him? Please contrast Sam and Zeke and what we might expect from a new O-line coach with the position. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, and I hope I get to all of it. And I'm looking forward to Tyler's evaluation more than mine. <laughs> um, you know, let, let's talk about even different offensive line coaches. We're not sure what Joe Rudolph's going to think of Zeke <clears throat> Carell. Um, you know, Harry likes Zeke much more than Brian Kelly and Jeff Quinn did. Um, so we're going to have to see how that worked out and the other thing is is joe rudolph going to come in and say like harry i want my best five and then i'll figure the positions out later or is he a guy that's going to say well pat coogan's the next best center uh let him compete with zeke for the starting spot without moving somebody over as far as 
Mustafer and Carell um, and comparing them. I mean, I I haven't done a great deal of film study, but what I will say is Mustafer's a bigger player. I mean, he's 322, Carell is 308, and he's been edging up over the years to get to that 308. He was sub 300 for a long time. Uh, Mustafer is super smart. I know that whenever he was in a meeting, he had his hand up. He knew the answer before everybody else. Uh, Corral was much more highly recruited than Sam was, or at least highly rated. Um, so, but I think Zeke can continue to improve. I don't know why he wouldn't. You know, another year under Matt Bayless is another year that you kind of put into the bank with strength equity and things of that nature. So uh, we'll see. But again, a lot's going to come down to how Joe evaluates players you know is he looking who's my best center or is he looking who are my best five offensive linemen yeah I mean I've been pretty transparent that I'd like to see Zeke Carell be pushed for the starting role this this offseason um my perspective is that he doesn't play with enough consistency and power which can get him and the rest of the offensive line in trouble at times um in terms of and yeah, I have no idea what Joe Rudolph's opinion of him will be or what he values in a center like that. <laughs> That's the right. Like, Hey, we're, he's we're... coached a Remington award winner recently though. So. Yeah. And so we'll see how that works out. Um, in terms of comparing the two, Sam was different in my opinion, because he was more reliable than Z Carell has been. But I also, I wouldn't like Sam wasn't necessarily spectacular either. Like Sam w- Sam wasn't going to do things that made you go, wow. Like he was going to be in the right place. He was going to be assignment correct. He was going to use his technique to his advantage, but he wasn't going to be blowing guys over. He wasn't going to be making crazy athletic movements to get himself in positions to do things. He was pretty workmanlike um, and, and used his his intelligence to his adv- advantage. And um, I think that's gotten him where he is in his NFL career as well. Um. I would say there's no reason that Carell can't get to that point. Um, I don't think like his size is, is a somewhat limiting factor, but if he can sort of play with that same sort of savvy that Sam Mustafer did, um, then he can do that. I th- I would say Z Carell is probably a more athletic offensive lineman than, than Sam is. Um, but I think, but I think, I mean, sometimes we sort of default to thinking, well, if he's exper- if he's getting more experience, then he's going to improve, and that's not always the case. That's not a that's not a foregone conclusion. Z Carell has to make sure that he continues to improve um, along with gaining the experience that he's got. And so, I think it'd be it's going to be important for him this offseason to continue to identify his his flaws and 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 work to fix those. Um, and I would imagine Joe Rudolph will, will will play a big role in trying to help that too. And, and sometimes. We, a new set of eyes can be can be good, and I don't know with with him being evaluated by a third offensive line coach in three years. You don't you don't you can't really say for sure like how much his past performance will imp- impact the um, sort of reputation that he has, or how much he'll be sort of starting with a clean slate and be and uh, maybe that makes it better for him that he has to go out and earn this job again because it's not like he he has a, a this earned respect from with Joe Rudolph from, from past performance. All right. Next question is from James Murphy at Murphy three, two, four. What's involved in developing digs and estimate into elite pass blockers running back snap counts will be affected by who is a dependable blocker. 
Well, I think you have to emphasize it and demand it and prioritize it. And now that they're going to be juniors, I think it's fair to to ask that of it. Remember, Logan last year missed a lot of time um, with the shoulder injury that he got right at the end of spring. He really wasn't right until, what, middle of September. Uh, so I'm not sure, you know, that it was emphasized as much as it would have been had he had a clean summer to be able to do it. But there's so many good running backs. When you start splitting hairs, you're going to have to, you know, look at things like uh, blitz pickup and pass blocking uh, when you differentiate who's going to get on the field. But I still think even if they're average pass blockers, they're good enough in everything else that they're going to get a lot of carries. Yeah. I, I mean, to get like in the weeds with, with, running back pass protection, which I can't pretend that I'm an expert on, but I think, I think it starts with anticipation and recognition. Um, you need to know where your responsibility is and be able to recognize how soon your, your blocking uh, is needed. Uh, I think you got to work inside out on contact to keep them off the quarterback and, and protect the quarterback as best you can. Um, I think running backs have a tendency to bury their head and sort of lunge at guys. Um, and, and even for as good as Kyron Williams was, he did that at times because I think Kyron was like, he, Kyron wanted to rock somebody. And sometimes like the want to do that can sort of get you off balance and, and put you in a bad position. So um, Kyron was great when he, when he did, when he followed the technique um, and connected on his blocks, but he would also like miss in certain situations because he was maybe getting too aggressive or wanting to make too big of an impact when it's just like hey just keep the guy off the quarterback you don't have to like knock him on his butt that's not that's not the goal every time uh so those would be things that i would be looking for um i'm sure Dylan mccullough has much better expertise in that field and i expect it to be emphasized um in the spring and going into next season next question is from at charles w wolf what does brian mason do as an encore this season I would say Brian would say they want to be better in their return games, especially kickoff return. They were 82nd nationally out of 131 teams in kickoff returns. And then I would say finding a reliable kicker out of the group that's going to include Spencer Schrader. He won't be here this spring to transfer from South Florida. There's some other guys in the mix there, but uh, getting Spencer Schrader to be a reliable kicker. I'd say those two things and then do everything else you did last year. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm in agreement. I, I'm expecting a lot of energy to be poured into impro improving kick returns. Um, and I think there could maybe be some more opportunities for punt returns because of the opponents being so worried about blocked punt. So th those are the two things that I'm interested in seeing. Um, but I think what... I mean, what was mo the, mo the most impressive part of like the punt blocking? And it was like, okay, after you've done it in a few games, like everyone, that's got to be like the special teams coach on the opposing teams. Like, okay, we can't let them block a punt. And then it still happens. So I, that's the sign of a really good coach. And he's figuring out ways to do that. Also a sign of a, of, of a uh, play players buying into what they're doing and knowing, okay, just because I blocked the punt this time or last week, doesn't mean that I'm going to be the one to block it this time. But if I do, my job is going to enable someone someone else to be able to block the punt. So um, I uh, am, am fascinated to see like what it looks like, because I think uh, he certainly set a high standard there in season one at Notre Dame. 
Um, but he's also the kind of guy that's not going to be uh, resting on that in terms of, okay, we've got it made here. He's going to continue to push to improve that those units and, and find, find more ways to give Notre Dame an advantage. Next question is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. Fill in the blanks. ND goes 11 and one or better in the fall. If blank happens on offense and Blake blank happens on defense. So let's start with offense first, Eric. What, what, what does Notre Dame need to do on offense to go 11 and one or better? This reminds me of the old match game. So I hope my uh, answer is better than Charles Nelson Riley's. Um, and certainly I would have a list rather than just one thing. But if I had to narrow it down to one for you, Marie, it would be Hartman is everything he's advertised to be. All right. I went that that's part of it, but I, I said frequent pl- big plays in the passing game, which Sam Hartman will have a lot to do. I think the wide receiver group will also have a lot to do with that. So we're on the same page there. What about on defense? The defense lines, defensive line surprises in a good way. Yeah, I, I said defensive line improvement. So we are, we are pretty uh, simpatico on the uh, on the what needs to happen for Notre Dame to sort of maximize its potential this coming season. All right, next question is from Mr. Nev at Mr. Irish Red. First timer in terms of asking a question, so we appreciate that. Uh, two questions here. Football, most important thing that must be improved, and basketball over under number of transfers brought in next season. So let's start with the football first, Eric. What do you think is the most important thing that needs to be improved for Notre Dame next season? Defensive line play and defensive line recruiting. All right. I went I went with the wide receiver play and explosiveness in the passing game. I obviously um we sort of talked about the two things that we need feel like need to happen next year. Um based on like last year, but so I, I think the I think the passing game is is more critical than the defensive line. Although I think, I think it's, I, it's easier to imagine the defensive line taking a nosedive than, than it is for the passing game to be worse than it was last year. Um, how about basketball over under no, number of transfers brought in next season? Well, usually you give me the over <laughs> under number and then I have to pick over. All right, I'll, I'll, so I'll give you a I'll, trick. I'll, I'll give you uh, my line. I was going to set was three and a half. What, what do you think? Uh, of yeah, usually line? it's a half. But I'm just going to predict the number rather than predict the over-under number since I don't want to do a half of a person. Um, I'm going to go with six. Six? Holy smokes. Um, there's definitely well, going to be – I think they're going to lose. There's going to be room got, for sure. They're losing all those grad guys now. I think they'll probably lose J.J. Starling and and maybe Van uh, Allen Lubin as well. I mean, I think they're going to – and they only have, what, one guy in the recruiting class right now? Yeah, yeah, Marcus Burton. And they already, one of the guys that decommitted already picked Wake Forest. So you're going to have to get some bodies unless unless the new coach is only going to play five people, <laughs> which the old coach wasn't much more than that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely going to be a lot. It just, six seems, <laughs> that seems tough. But I mean, there is the, there seems like there will be room for it. I don't, I don't know how many of these guys are going to stick around. Will, will Van Allen Lubin, will J.J. Starling, um stick around yeah but i mean what's more realistic the transfers are more freshmen you know but it depends who the coach is yeah i mean i don't i i don't i don't know enough about how many like recruits are still out there that you could still get um certainly when you're talking about transfers and grad transfers you're not you're not looking as a 
as, as long of a commitment. So you would feel like that's a better short-term answer than sort of lo- lo- loading up on freshmen that maybe are afterthoughts in the recruiting process that are still available. Um, that's probably not the best way to go about it, but um, I, I, I think we're going to, we're going to find out sort of what exactly the allure of like Notre Dame playing in the ACC is, even if you know, you're going to be playing for a poor team, like how, how valuable is it to get into, into Notre Dame as like a grad transfer from the Ivy league or a grad transfer from one of these mid-major teams where maybe, you know, you're not going to be on a successful team this coming season, but you're going to be in a position to play a lot and you're going to be up against talented players. And how does that impact maybe your, your professional outlook or, what what's next for your career i think um i certainly wouldn't be surprised if it gets up to six um but if i had to put a line it feels feels hard to put a line that high but um like like we said there's there's <laughs> spots available I, I i i i was saying that if i was like a rich kid um that wasn't getting scholarship offers i would just go to notre dame <laughs> and then walk onto the team because even the walk-ons are going to have opportunities next season on the basketball on the men's basketball program all right last question we have is from alan e on the insider lounge what would be a possible what would be possible outcomes for notre dame if the acc were to disband stay independent or join a conference so you know we get the join a conference question so many times and in this instance it's very appropriate um because florida state's already kind of um making some oh posturing a little bit about what the acc would have to do to keep them and so that's a very realistic scenario and when you're evaluating these conference versus independent questions in football there's three things that you really have to pay attention to that would get Notre Dame's attention. One is access to the championship. That's still in play for Notre Dame as a football independent. Media rights, they're working on that. If they get a great media rights deal, that helps. But the third one is a place to house their basketball teams and Olympic sports. And when the Big East imploded, Notre Dame was in a position where they had to find a new home And the price to go to the ACC was an average of five games a year against ACC competition. I'm not sure that one of the other conferences would give Notre Dame that kind of deal, at least not a power five conference. And so um, I think the first thing Jack Swarbrick or whoever the athletic director would be at that point would say, can you stay in independent football and get somebody to take the other sports? If you can't, then Notre Dame is going to, they can't have their uh, basketball teams and their Olympic sports teams be independent. So that would be the end of football independence. Yeah. I, I may, maybe like someone like the big 12 would be willing to take them on as, as everything else. Maybe. I mean, that was the last round. The big 12 was talk of a partner. And they, I mean, they have been expanding the Pac-12 is desperate, but it doesn't make sense for Notre Dame to be a Pac-12 conference. <laughs> like the the amount of money that it would requ- require to be a Pac-12 team um, is not going to be reciprocated by the amount of money they would get by joining the Pac-12. Um, so yeah, I mean, if the ACC were to disband, I think it sort of forces Notre Dame's hand to have to join the Big Ten or the SEC. I don't I don't know what what the alternative would be. The Big East isn't isn't healthy enough to make that a fallback plan, in my opinion. Um, 
I think they would they would also be in the category of someone desperate enough to take on ND in that way. But I don't know that that would make a lot of sense for Notre Dame. So um, the health of the ACC, I think, is very, very critical in Notre Dame's future as a, a football independent. All right, that's it for today's episode of the Inside Indie Sports Podcast. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other popular podcast platforms. If you like what you hear, give us a star rating, leave a review, and share our podcast feed with your favorite teacher. We want to get to 100 ratings on Apple Podcasts in 2023, and we are now up to 92. Thanks to this five-star review from San Diego Domer, who says, these guys are always prepared and informed and have great camaraderie. They have a way of making you feel a part of things just by listening. Really enjoy their work. So thank you, San Diego Domer, um, for that review. That means a lot. We we appreciate that. Um, you should only hear our conversations when we're not recording. Uh, <laughs> we, we might not stick to our weekly frequency in the next few weeks before spring practice starts with the podcast. Spring practice starts March 22nd. But you will certainly still hear from us at least a couple times between now and then. We're hoping to do another Football Never Sleeps on YouTube later this week while I'm down at the NFL combine. So make sure you subscribe to us on YouTube as well. But until you hear our voices again, stick with insidendsports.com for all your Notre Dame coverage needs. <laughs>